everybody, welcome to Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. This is part 7 of Metallicast Black Summer, my 10-week chronological track-by-track breakdown of the Black Album. Last week was a two-for-one. I looked at Don't Tread On Me and Through the Never, and I believe that is going to be my last solo show for the Black Summer series as I have guests lined up for the remaining episodes, including... I guess today he is uh, returning guests, not only to Metallicast, but the one and only returning guest I have for Black Summer. He is a music journalist. You know him better as Mr. St. Anger. I'm talking, of course, about Mr. Richard S. He. Richard, welcome back yet again. Thank you for having me. I just could not resist. Like, I was not going to just show up and talk about Holy Than Now, so... <laughs> if you are listen. if you are behind for some reason on Metallica which you should not be because you should be listening the first day it comes out uh, more than listening you should be downloading you should be subscribing but if you are behind Richard was here for part 3 of Black Summer we looked at Holier Than Thou one of the thrasher tunes on the record and now we are looking at a song that is far from thrash Nothing else matters. Indeed. And what a song that is. A lot to say about this song. Uh, Before we jump in, I've been trying my best to keep track of the current Billboard 200 position of the Black Album. Um, Some weeks I have forgotten. Thankfully, the local newsman has my back. Um, I never knew that the local news was so involved in podcasts, never mind Metallica podcasts, but once in a while he keeps interrupting me for these breaking news updates, Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have a need for him this week because I'm going to start with it. Guess what, Richard? What? Are you ready to hear about the power of Metallicast? Are you ready to hear about the power of the Metallicast militia? I'm hardwired for it. Well, that is very good, because the Black Album is still not in the Billboard 200. Uh, (laughs) But Hardwired to Self-Destruct is back there at number 176. Yay. So, um, I've not completely killed the selling, uh, the sellability. Is that a word, sellability? Marketability? No, that's a different thing. The, come on, music journalist. Come on. (laughs) You're the one with the words. The, the... The, the chart presence. Let's go with the chart presence. <laughs> of I've not completely killed the chart presence of Metallica. Uh, I have significantly killed the chart presence of their best-selling album. Um, even though it's still up there. It's still, if you look at the hard rock albums, it's still up there. But apparently there are at least 200 more albums that have sold more since I've started this weekly <laughs> Track by track breakdown. <laughs> I do have a, an interesting t- uh, statistic for you, right? So, um, in September last year, the Black Album hit a historic 500th week on the Billboard 200 chart. So, 500 weeks in about uh, when did it come out? Like 18 years ago. Sounds right. 1991. Yeah, which 18 times 52 weeks. 936 weeks since it's come out. And so that means it's been on the Billboard 200 for like over half yeah. the time since. Pretty crazy. So, I mean, yeah. it 
it, I, it was not in the Billboard 200 consecutively before I started recording, so at least I have that going for me, you know, but um, still shows the power that this podcast holds over Metallica. What if, <laughs> what if we've been sucking listeners away from the Black Album? Because what if they, we've dropped so many podcasts that, like, they don't have time to listen to the Black Album, and thus it's fallen out? <laughs> you know what? I like it. I, let's go with that. Because... The competition. Every week they have a new thing about the Black Album, you know? Or we, I have a new thing about the Black Album, and they just do not have the time to go back and buy it again. <laughs> <laughs> They're too busy uh, writing their messages on FlickChat. Thank you for mentioning FlickChat, um, a free app that Richard is part of, as well as several others. We have a lot of good Metallica conversation on there. If you're not sure what FlickChat is, you obviously have not been hearing me shilling uh, this product uh, for the last several weeks. I'm not getting paid. This is not an advertisement. It's just uh, a cool app that I stumbled upon, and I think it's great. It's not actually officially launched. I guess it's officially launching in September. So we're getting in on the ground floor as the next big thing, or not. But (laughs) it's basically a forum, but it's uh, set around podcasts. Uh, you can download the app for free. You can use the code Metallicast. Join Richard, me, and many others, some of whom you'll be hearing uh, about and from later in this episode when we hear their thoughts on this classic track. Uh, but please join. It's it's growing. It's growing slowly, but it's growing surely. You know, my yeah. my Facebook started off slow, and it's, now that page is not doing too bad for itself. So I'm not worried. Um <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we have quite the cast of characters on FlickChat already, so... Yeah. And, and and the cool part is, is like, you're going to hear, uh, later in this episode, I'm going to hear, we're going to, I'm going to read some uh, opinions about Nothing Else Matters from a couple people on Twitter, and I do not want to uh, devalue their, their thoughts, but you're going to just hear a lot more in-depth responses from the members of the Metalcast Militia that are on FlickChat. One, because I think we got a diehard, hardcore uh, base in that app that love to talk. But also, two, it, you have no character limit. It, it's You're pretty much free to write as much or as little as you want, whereas Twitter obviously limits you, despite their efforts to increase character size over the years. Uh um, before we start, I have to correct my math. Um, actually, the Black Album has been out for 28 years, which I should know since that's about my age. So it's been on the 200, <laughs> built for 200 for about a third of its run. Not well, long. you know, 18 <laughs> years sounded like too little, but I'm too lazy yeah. and dumb to call you out and check. So <laughs> The crap rolls out, not that again. <laughs> and your brain is still gelatin. Yeah. But the good thing is, Richard, now that we've gone in that fight out of the way in part three of Black Summer, you know, that was our first fight. Uh, We got it out Mm. of the way. Um, And now I just have to say, Richard, you know, you are in Australia. It's Tuesday morning. I am in the United States. It is Monday night. And just I feel so close no matter how far. Couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever. Trust in who we are. And nothing else matters. And scene. 
<laughs> so let's jump into the song. I feel like there is a lot to discuss in this episode. Nothing Else Matters, track eight off uh, the Black album, the third single released from the album. Let's start off with the obvious, and I think this is going to be something we keep coming back to uh, when we talk about specifics in the song. So without getting too specific yet in terms of um, you know, musicality or performance or lyrics, right? Without getting too deep into that stuff yet, we will. We will get there. Just generally speaking, though, this song vastly different than anything ever heard on Metallica record to date when this album is released. Indeed. I mean, they had ballads, but never one that sounded quite like this. You know? This was Fade to Black, Welcome Home Sanitarium, one, even the Unforgiven early in the record can all be correctly categorized as ballads, but especially with the 80s material, it builds into this thrash metal whirlwind. Unforgiven never reaches thrash metal, but it has its heavier parts, has a big soaring guitar solo, very epic in its own way. Nothing Else Matters is the most ballady this band has done to date and the most stripped down in certain ways um that uh the most stripped down they've been on record so far indeed yeah it's more intimate than any of their past ballads but in its own way it's also grander like less fewer notes being played like it's bigger like more evocative a lot of space in it yeah a lot of space that it, it's weird because it it's weird to describe a song as stripped down when it features a full symphony orchestra behind it. <laughs> it you know it's like a very stripped down song but with a very lush arrangement but the way it's presented it feels a lot more stripped down and a lot more raw and bare um than what we've heard from Metallica previously. And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the subject of the song and sort of the story behind the song. So let's start there. Um, I think this is a fairly well-known story for Metallica diehards. But the story goes, and Richard, feel free to interrupt and jump in at any point during this. Um, James Hatfield, he's in uh, the way... I've read it described from interviews and documentaries and the way I picture it in my head as well is James Hatfield is sitting on a hotel bed. He has a guitar in hand. He's talking to his girlfriend at the time on the phone and he plucks the open strings on his guitar in a certain order. Now, for those of you who may not know what I mean when I say an open string, That is when you hit a guitar string without fretting anything on the fretboard. You are literally just playing the string as is without adding anything to it. And he does it in a way where he goes, bum, 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 bum. And it ends. What what you know is the intro to Nothing Else Matters. He just sort of is doing, and then it catches his ear. He quickly gets off the phone, and he starts writing what I will call a masterpiece. And I would agree, yes. And just to make that clear. And the not only is this a song that uh, does not sound like something Metallica would record, 
the lyrics he adds to it, not something you would expect lyrically from Metallica. And because of all that, James Heffel never intends the song to be a Metallica song. It's just something he says, I'm, it, this is for me. This is for me. I wrote this. It's too personal, too different, too out there. It's not for Metallica. It's for me. And, you know, he records a demo of it as the story goes. Lars Ulrich stumbles upon it. And it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I mean, I cannot. It's it's ironic because what what did you say it was? 28 years? Yeah. I cannot picture 28 years later Metallica having not recorded this song. I know, right? Because it informs so much of their direction with Load and Reload, and S&M probably wouldn't exist without it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into all that. We, I, I've already talked about how it's personal. So let's start there. Let's start with the lyrics. Usually I save the lyrics for last, but I feel like there's so much... Let's start with the lyrics. I mean, on paper, kind of a love song, right? He's on the road. He's talking about his girlfriend who uh, lives away from him, who, who he's not seeing. But I feel like that's just sort of what the lyrics are on paper. Agreed. Um, I want to make a comparison because it's interesting to think that Wherever I May Roam is a song that's very much about being empowered by being on the road and mm-hmm. nothing else matters was inspired by the opposite. It was inspired by a moment of loneliness on the road, but it's still, I think in the end ultimately kind of embraces that mentality of being like almost nomadic, like almost just you and one more person in a society that's kind of like moving around you, you know, like nothing right. else matters. You're all I need. But I think, yeah. You're right, like, you could interpret the song as being about a lover, but also about the band itself. Yeah. And I remember seeing in uh, a documentary, it might have been classic album, somebody out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but Hatfield basically said that, you know, when I when I wrote it, it was about this specific person. That specific person is out of my life now, <laughs> you know? It, mm. There's a girlfriend he broke up with. Um, but he's like, I still find meaning in it because you can also look at it as a, uh, a brotherhood, you know, whether it be a brotherhood in the band a brotherhood with close friends, uh, a brotherhood between the band and the fan base. Um, you know, it, there's, uh, a lot of meaning here. In fact, I found uh, a quote from Hatfield. Uh, this was a quote from Mojo magazine in December, 2008. And he's talking about Nothing Else Matters. And he says, it's about being on the road, missing someone at home. But it was written in such a way, it connected with so many people, that it wasn't just about two people. It was about a connection with your higher power, lots of different things. Hetfield added, I remember going to the Hells Angels Clubhouse in New York. And they showed me a film that they put together of one of the Fallen Brothers. And they were playing Nothing Else Matters. Wow, this means a lot more than me missing my chick, right? This is Brotherhood. The army could use this song. It's pretty powerful. So, I and I think that's the beauty of lyrics, uh, especially well-done lyrics, where people can interpret it in different ways. But 
that lyric got me thinking, or that quote got me thinking, and a question I want to pose to you, Richard S. He, to put you on the spot a little bit. Are these the most universal lyrics James Hetfield has written? I I think so. I'm there may be some on load and reload that don't come to mind right now. But yeah, certainly. Like even when you compare it to more so-called personal songs by James like Mama Said or um, mm-hmm. the God That Failed, like it's more open-ended, but also it never feels like he wrote those lyrics for mass appeal, you know? Yeah. They just happen to be relatable and happen to be voiced in a way that is specific, but also very universal. Yeah, totally. And like I said, and we, and when, uh, Brian silver was on for part four, we talked about the unforgiven. We went into this unexpectedly deep lyrical (laughs) analysis of the song. But the the point was sort of how, you know, I love lyrics that are kind of open-ended and you can, it's not spelled out for you. And it can be interpreted in different ways depending on the person, depending on your mood, depending on your life experience, whatever. And I just feel these lyrics are, if they're not the most universal lyrics James Heffield has written, it's definitely... I would say top three. I mean, I feel like these are so easily identifiable to so many different people from so many different walks of life because everybody at some point has had some kind of relationship, whether it be with a family member, whether it be with a friend, whether it be with uh, you know, a significant other. Everybody has experienced some level of loneliness at some point. It, like, I could care less if you are a hardcore black metal fan who listens to Course Pain podcasts all the time. <laughs> or you are, like, a, a 10-year-old emo, ugly girl. <laughs> they might be one of the same, actually, black metal fans and emo, ugly girls. Um, that's not the best comparison for complete opposites. But you get the general drift. People from all opposite walks of life, I feel like, can find something to relate to in many Metallica lyrics, but especially these. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about Metallica's career from this angle, right? So I feel like on album one, they were the fastest band in the world. Albums two to four, to me, they were like the sharpest, the most precise band in the world. Like everything they did was so like precise and so on point like every note mattered on album five the self-titled they became i think the biggest band in the world but not in a way that was totally calculated right yeah otherwise you don't end up with songs like this and um what you were saying about this being their most universal lyric i think that still rings true because as i'm sure we'll talk about uh later I feel like it's Metallica's most covered song and especially yeah. outside of the genre of metal. Um, that's probably where like most of the covers of it have come from. In fact. Yeah. I mean, with, you know, there are certain songs where you're going to get a lot of covers of, um, there are going to be other songs where you're like, Oh, I have like one or two to choose from. This song has 
hundreds of cover songs. Even if you just go to YouTube and search in Nothing Else Matters cover, you, you're going to find everything from like a 10-year-old playing guitar in his bedroom to uh, a classical version to a jazz version to all these like female pop singers doing either very uh, doing arrangements and all the arrangements too, which is awesome about this song. The arrangements are either very sparse, very bare bones or very lush, very like lavish, very big, very grand. Uh, they, they really run the gamut and there's a lot of cool interpretations out there. Yeah. And funnily enough for a song that's so covered on no level, is it an easy song to pull off? Um, yeah. Like, the James guitar arrangement is, you know, at least, like, an advanced kind of guitar level. It's not, you know, Guitar 101. And even vocally, to sell the intimacy that James has, very difficult. Like, it's not a showy song. You really need to inhabit that lyric, I think. Yeah. And let it build over the six minutes of the song. Yeah, I, and I feel like this could be a song that somebody can easily oversing. Agreed, yeah. And this is sort of a, a a vocal performance where almost less is more. Yeah. All right, here's an observation. So I feel like I, in some ways, I feel like I never truly understood the way I thought about heavy metal until I read someone tweet like five or six years ago. I think they said, James Hetfield is the greatest metal singer of all time. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting statement. Like, people don't really say it that often. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't get that much credit just for being a pure singer. But then I went back and thought about it, and I was like, actually, I agree, because powerful voice, but very, very expressive, um, and because his, ly- his vocal expression is so tied to his lyrics rather than the idea of just melodies or just, like, the showiness, um, yeah. I think that gives him, yeah, a vulnerability that a lot of metal singers don't have. Um, with Nothing Else Matters, it's a great song, but it's also a great song completely like independent of its relation to Metallica. Like yeah. You don't need to know any other Metallica songs to like this. But at the same time, like that is why it's such a great song, because Hetfield can sing with that vulnerability, but he also can bring that kind of growl later on when the song really needs it. You know? Right. And yeah. I often think... We all talk about, like, lead singer syndrome and singers having big egos and all that kind of thing, right? That's very familiar. Um, To me, Hetfield is the opposite of that because he never conceived himself as a vocalist. Um, Even up to, like, Ride the Lightning, he wasn't really set on being the lead vocalist of the band. They wanted to bring in, like, John Bush and they had auditioned other singers. It's like a role that he fell into by mistake. And so I really I really admired that about him because it's just something that it's like a talent that you don't know you have that because right. you don't put an enormous amount of ego or like even kind of pride into it, you just like learn to inhabit it and become great at it, you know? Yeah. I think all of that is a lot of really good observations there. And I, I, my personal opinion was always James Hetfield is 
one of my favorite vocalists of all time, and I think he is the best heavy metal singer of all time. Because if you look at, when you think of great metal singers, people always want to name, uh, you know, Bruce Dickinson, Rob Halford, Dio, and all rightfully so, right? They have these, the te- right. and, yeah. and, and compared to James Hetfield, all their voices are technically more proficient. They have hot, they have more range. They have, uh, you know, an operatic element to it. Um, and I'll, and I'll say this, you know, somebody like Bruce Dickinson, he's, he, he sounds just as good, if not better than he ever has. And he's older than Hatfield, you know, and they, you know, they're singing, he's singing the original key, uh, live and it, it's all very impressive, but could you take any of them and have them sing a song like Mama Said, or Nothing Else Matters, or Little Man's Lyric, or do, uh, you know, an acoustic cover of uh, In My Life, or Garbage, or Dire Straits, or any of the more, or do Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, or anything like that with the same authenticity and with the same effectiveness? I, I do not think so. I think those guys maybe could do a pretty good job, but it's more like the the people who all they know how to do is wail that wouldn't be able to do that, you know? I think, well, let me clarify. I think they would technically be able to do it, but I mm-hmm. do not think it would have the same uh, vulnerability, the same rawness. I feel like it almost would be too clean for yeah. a, a song like this. Like, it would be almost too perfect in yeah. some ways because it's like those guys are also great storytellers that's why they're great frontmen but they to me they tell stories with their melodies and the vocal range and their inflections it's kind of like an yeah. operatic thing right whereas um someone like james when he's singing in that kind of softer context it's all about the vocal inflections like right. a country singer for example yeah same and- deal yeah, exactly. And I also, too, like, I've always been drawn to vocalists that have a more raw, unpolished voice. Like, a couple of my favorite vocalists are Johnny Cash and Tom Waits, who are, are very, like, warts and all. And I feel like Heffield is a very proficient singer these days, but he's also sort of warts and all. Like, there's going to be... Uh, a crack here or there. There's gonna be uh, a note that's too flat here or there. It, it, but the emotion is always gonna be there, and the authenticity is always going to be there. And I feel like a song like "Nothing Else Matters," especially near the end of the song, that vocal performance, it's like almost, it's like almost whispered. You can almost hear. It, it's as close as the voice comes to breaking without breaking, and a. I, I feel like it's uh, it's definitely not something James Hetfield ever did on record before, and it, to a, and on a certain level, it, as great as his voice has become, and as many great vocal performances as we've gotten from him, um, I'm not sure he's captured that rawness and vulnerability um, 
in that same way. Yeah, the recording of Nothing Else Matters is very much a moment in time. Like, even the way they played on SNM a few years later is pretty different, and James's voice has changed, yeah. and so on. Um, but you can tell that James really put in the work and the effort to get to that point. Like, not just in the nine or so years prior since Kill 'Em All, but also yeah. in the 18 months or so that they spent recording this album. Yeah, because uh, you can actually look up the Nothing Else Matters demo, not the original solo one that we mentioned before, but it's like, I think it's a full band one, or at least a four track, because it's like maybe two guitars, a little bit of bass, and Lars is drumming. Yeah. Um, and actually, the entire structure of the song, the six minutes, is there, but it's funny to note what's missing, because James hasn't gone all the way with the vocal melodies or his singing, it's kind of just like laying down a scratch track. And so that yeah. to me shows the value of like a producer like Bob Rock and the process that I went through. Cause exactly. he kind of put it through hell, but he yeah. got a perfect recording. And I, I, that's something we touched upon a little bit in the Unforgiven episode, but I want to touch it upon. I want to touch upon it again now because uh, the influence of Bob Rock across this record cannot go unnoticed or unsaid. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he became the fifth member of Metallica during the Black Album. But the vocal performances he got from James Hetfield, I mean, this was, if the, un, you know, Brian and I were saying in the Unforgiven episode, that was like the first time a lot of people ever heard Metallica, uh, ever heard James truly sing. And, this is another example of that, but I'll say, I'll go a little farther and say, you know, it, it's not just James singing. It's not just a clean, pretty melody. It's the almost uh, surprising soulfulness, the surprising vulnerability that, uh, you know, the the motion that he is able to get across the listener just from changing his voice certain ways and singing certain ways is really quite remarkable. And that was a big Bob Rock influence. Um, and I know he opened James up to a lot of different things he had not previously checked out before. And James ha has openly said one of his biggest vocal influences uh, making this record, particularly for this song, was Chris Isaac, who you know, is somebody from completely left field of the Metallica world. But if you listen to, you know, his most well-known song is Wicked Games and just has a very soulful voice with a lot of yeah. emotion. I mean, people do say that all popular music comes from country music in a way. I mean, the blues even before that, but you can yeah. see kind of how that early progenitor, like, uh, comes back around to these artists who seem so different but actually have like quite a lot in common right it's like we're all storytellers you know and right it's like there are only so many notes and so many ways to tell stories and put together these different configurations of sounds and that's why um, i think you have somebody like a johnny cash who crosses over into so many different demographics and fans of various genres of music and including somebody like james hetfield and i feel like that's part of the reason why Metallica has been able to do the same thing.
Yeah, absolutely. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I'll pick up that Bob Rock thread. Yeah, the value of Bob Rock as producer, not just in the performances he got, but also in the sound of the record, which I think uh, there's really no other album that sounds like the Black Album, and we've touched on that, but Nothing Else Matters is like such an odd-sounding song in itself. because It's like it mm-hmm. opens with that classical guitar, very soft. Um, there's no radio edit of the song, so yeah. um, quite often you're... I mean, there is a cut-down version, but quite often you're playing like a lot of that intro very soft. It kind of forces you to lean in and like really actively listen in order to hear it. And then mm. it's like the drums, and it's almost like the drums are the lead instrument, I would say, apart from the voice, because there's so much of that ambience in the cymbals. You feel like yeah. you're in the room with Lars and all that space. And the orchestra is actually like... It's there, but it's not enveloping the song in the way that it does on S&M. It's like actually mm-hmm. pushed quite far back in a way that's kind of artificial, actually, mm-hmm. because you can't get a, a string section to play that softly in real life. Yeah, yeah. But it achieves this sense of distance. And actually, now I remember what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> so imagine being James Hetfield and delivering a vocal performance, right? And imagine the posture that you have to adopt in order to sing a song like Battery or Master of Puppets while playing right. the guitar. Yeah, um, You're physically quite tense, right? You're playing these very precise guitar. Uh, you're picking really fast, you're fretting, and it takes like a lot of vocal muscle in order to hit those notes live with the kind of grit that he does in the studio. Yeah. But then you imagine yourself seeing the first verse of Nothing Else Matters. It's like a completely different posture. You have to be so relaxed, so calm, and so at peace with yourself. Um, Like, imagine doing it at karaoke. Like, you can't go all fucking white snake on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even, yeah, literally just that physical difference shows how far they'd come, I think, and how much it requires to do a song like this. Absolutely. Go all the way. Absolutely. I think those are all good points. And to, you know, add on, uh, I've read many times Nothing Else Matters described as a power ballad. And I guess Mm -hmm. in certain ways, maybe it is, but I feel like it's so much more uh, you know, it's so much more than that. And when, when I think of power ballad, I'm thinking, you know, a band like White Snake or, you know, a hair metal band with it, it's a lot flashier, a lot more over the top, um, and really builds up to another level that Nothing Else Matters does not quite. Yeah, it has the big guitar solo, but the guitar solo even is not flashy. It's, more soulful than anything and it just mm. it seems like a lot more if, if it's a power ballad it's a very stripped down power ballad yeah it's like um with a power ballad when you're listening to it there's never any doubt that um like power ballads by definition like they can't be depressing they can't be sad they have to leave you yeah. with the impression that 
oh, you're going to be strong. You're going to be okay. You're going to sit yeah. down and uh, hit the high notes and everything. And nothing right. else matters. Even structurally, it doesn't do that because it ends in the same place that it started, yeah. which is still quite soft. And that picking and there's kind of no... There, there is catharsis because you get the heavy part, but there's no resolution because the structure of the song is a circle. It's yeah. like it keeps going around and around. It, it, it's something that they would uh, sort of duplicate again on load with a song like Bleeding Me, where you have like the very stripped down uh, beginning verses, builds into the chorus and the solo, but then at the end goes back to how it began. And it very just stripped down and very soulful and very bare bones in a lot of ways. And um, that's not a very, like, metal song thing, because metal songs are very definitive. Like, generally, they have quite defined starts and ends. Even if they do end with, like, the starting riff or something like that, in the way that yeah. Master of Puppets does. But um, Metallica have had, like, fade-outs before to, like, Orion, and um, even, like, fade-ins, like, Damage Inc. So yeah. I guess that was another sort that they were already playing with. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the... Orchestra arrangement, and this is definitely not something I want to just brush over. Um, you, you, I liked how you said it's sort of in the background, sort of makes it uh, feel distant almost. And when I at the beginning, when I was saying it's sort of ironic because it's a when you look at all of its parts, it's a very lush, grand arrangement, but the way it's mixed and produced makes it sound very bare. Mm. It's almost like, I think of it as almost um, Injustice for All-ish, where you have like the lack of bass sort of adds to uh, the grimness and the bleakness of that record, in my opinion. And having the orchestra in this track kind of muted a little bit, it, it never becomes this big overpowering thing but rather just a slight layer to it that fills in some of the openness but not enough to take over the song and it still sounds quiet and vulnerable and um, sort of I keep saying it but just sort of bare especially compared to the ballads that came before and um, you always notice when the orchestra is there in the song, but you also always notice when they're not there. Yes. Um, not only in the studio recording, but when you hear them play it live without the orchestra, um, it is great, but you you do get the sense that in some ways it's like not complete or you, you kind of yearn yeah. for that orchestra. To be there. Your mind fills in the blanks. Is what yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think what I would compare this to, funnily enough, um, is like the 1920s and 30s and 40s crooners, um, like Frank Sinatra being Crosby, um, because what they did, um, those guys, uh, they you know literally crooned. They sang very softly over these kind of big orchestral backings, and that's something that could not exist. Um, without the invention of microphones and mm-hmm. vinyl and recording technology. Because yeah. traditionally in opera, you have to be very loud in order to project over an orchestra. Because they didn't have amplification back in the day. Yeah, That's how they still do it, I think. But 
um, when that generation of like jazz pop crooners arrived, they um, went for that very like intimate kind of bassy voice approach to singing. And that's what that reminds me of Nothing Else Matters, because, again, it's so dependent on recording technology to create this headspace of James Hetfield yeah. to bring you in close and to like really lean in rather than rather than like overpowering you. Right. I think that's a very good comparison. Um, well, you know, the have you heard the story of them meeting Michael Kamen for the first time? I believe I have. So the for those of you who have not heard it, this Michael Kamen is uh I mean most of you listening probably know this, but he did the orchestral arrangement for the song. Um and he was the conductor for the first S and M shows with the San Francisco Symphony. Um and basically the story of the meeting was Metallica's playing an award show. I'm not sure which one. It was one of the many they played at during the black album era. Um and Michael came and approached them backstage and was like, guys, you sounded awesome. I'm, you know, I'm Michael came and I did the orchestra arrangement for nothing else matters. And Ben was like, Oh my God, we loved it. He's like, Oh really? Cause you could not really hear it on the album. <laughs> and, and the band has sort of said, um, you know, they kind of turn it down the mix cause they kind of, they said they kind of like pussied out to a certain extent because, but I, but I think it sort of like adds to, it adds to the song personally, like for all the reasons we mentioned already. But they, you know, they were like, well, you know, you should check this out, and they gave them a mix of the song um, that was guitar, vocal, and orchestra, and nothing else, um, because nothing else matters. <laughs> and, and I believe uh, that mix is on the official single. Yeah, it's on it, it it's on the B side of the Sabbath True single and it's been dubbed uh, the the elevator mix. So <laughs> <laughs> which I also love because the band is like so tongue in cheek towards themselves, you know. <laughs> but it, it is I, a, I have heard elevator music and it doesn't sound like nothing else matters. Also no, <laughs> definitely not. But it it is a really cool arrangement. Um and very different from the original because the, the orchestra is right up front. It's definitely more in line with um, the SM Live version that they recorded years later. Trust 
I seek and I find in you Every day for us something new Open mind for a different view And nothing else matters Never care for what they do Never care for what they know
But it's funny that, you know, I kind of mentioned this before, uh, but the song that uh, was so unlike anything they've ever done is arguably their most recognizable song. Definitely one of them, I would say Inter Salmon and this are pretty much, for those people who have never heard anything else by Metallica, they pretty much know those two songs. And you very much get the two sides of Metallica with those two songs as well. Yeah. And also, yeah, as co- as much as they've been covered, you if you cover them wrong, that's also like one way that you can kind of see the essence of Metallica. You know? Yeah. Because you can't just take the notes and the chords and expect to have that same presence. Right. And it when you hear a lot of the covers, I'm not going to say all the covers, but when you hear a lot of the covers... I think uh, any Metallica cover of any song, I, if you, I, I like the ones that go really outside the box and do different arrangements because I feel like when you do a straightforward Metallica cover, you immediately recognize what that band is lacking. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, like there are other good covers, like when older bands do it, like Motorhead, where um, yeah. they bring like a different kind of spirit to it and. True. It's the reverse, like the influencer covering covering the influence. Yeah, that is true. Um, I definitely want to mention going. Uh, we sort of mentioned the guitar solo in passing before, um, but not a Kirk Hammett solo on this track. Mm. One of the few times that uh, James Hetfield uh, plays lead on the track. And, and in fact, one of the few Metallica songs with no Kirk contributions in the studio. Right. If you watch A Year and a Half in the Life of, I, I believe it, it must be in the documentary, Kirk's basically saying, like, I, we're going to premiere Nothing Else Matters tonight. I have to learn the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, because... I think live it is a Kirk intro, right? He plays the entire intro. Yeah, typically when they play it live... Uh, Kirk plays the solo or plays the intro by himself and then James comes in and then the rest of the band usually kicks in after the first verse and then uh, and usually the whole last verse um, vocally is left out because usually James will be leaving to change out guitars or whatever and Kirk will kind of just end it on guitar most of the time so it's a very different arrangement live um, especially now. Um, I always loved it when they did it, um, when James did it on the stool. And then when you got to the, yeah, I would kick the stool out. And then, <laughs> and it, it was like such a rock star move, but effective every time. <laughs> like on, um, on this, in the second part of a year and a, a year and a half in the life of, um, when you get the live footage and it's like after James has had his like burns injury, yeah. So the tech is playing guitar, and he's just forced to, like, sing on the stool and, like, really sell it that way. And, like, he really pulls it off in a way that I can't imagine him being comfortable doing that, like, a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, this is, you know, um, I will find a way to work in Sane Anger, because you are on this episode. <laughs> but, I, you know, one of the things we've talked about with that album is love it or hate it or somewhere in the middle... There's a lot of vulnerability um, in those songs and in the vocal performances. And you hear 
those imperfections. When I said before, like, you know, sometimes you're going to hear a flat note or a cracked voice. You can hear it on the St. Anger album, uh, for better or for worse. Um, but I feel like this was really the first time that vocally, and one of the first times lyrically, that he let his guard down to show this different side. And, I, and I'm willing to make an argument that without this song, without Bob Rock pushing this song in a certain direction, without Lars Ulrich saying, let's record this and steering mm-hmm. the arrangement in a certain direction, we may not have gotten, you know, and some people will be like, yeah, good, but we may not have gotten, you know, load, reload, uh, some of the garaging covers, um, the S&M performance probably would not have happened. And it, I think with the vulnerability that you hear on St. Anger just would not be the same without him being willing all those years later on this album, and particularly on this song, letting his guard down and showing a different side of himself. Agreed. And they wouldn't be the biggest fan in the world either. Yeah. Without it. I think in the long run. Um, but yeah, it is funny you mentioned San Anger in that way because you're right. It is like a... It's not a similar kind of vulnerability. It's a similar kind of... that They're exposed. They're like equally exposed emotionally. Yeah. But it's almost like the opposite sonic palette and opposite approach in so many other ways. But that got me thinking about a song like Dyer's Eve, which, um, again, very personal... Um, very cathartic and very full of rage, but in a way that like, I always thought that Metallica couldn't take that any farther than they did. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I keep talking about, uh, how the black album is a response to injustice for all. And it with Mm. each track, you can hear that response, whether it be, listen, we wrote, a nine-minute song with about 20 riffs. Let's write a one-riff song called Inter Sandman. Or whether it yeah. be, um, you know, I it, the last episode, James Hatfield lyrically, Don't Tread on Me was a response to his lyrics in Just For All, where he basically was like, in Just For All showed a dark side of America, but I love this country. I want to show, you know, the other side of America. So even the lyrics in that track was sort of like a balance to what we saw in Justice for All. And I feel like nothing else matters. It, it, you know, to, to use your Dyer's Eve comparison, we take arguably the two, definitely two of the most personal songs he's written up to this point, and they cannot be more opposite of each other. And isn't it funny how on the Black Album itself, you have Through the, through the Never, Nothing Else Matters, and then Of Wolf and Man. Yeah. No, surprised it's not next to the Unforgiven, but yeah, yeah, got the various sides of Metallica. Well, it I always thought it was funny when I had the cassette of the Black Album, and you know most albums the way they're structured, you have the radio hits up front, right? It it so you have the the side A of the Black Album cassette. I remember the first uh, six songs. So you had um, basically four huge hits out of those six songs. And then Nothing Else Matters was like the leftover hit on side B. Because <laughs> it was placed <laughs> later in the album, which is which is rare. But it's also rare to have an album with 
five gigantic songs like that. So this is sort of a rarity in and of itself. But And also fitting for it to be put there when it's like the biggest slow burner on an album that had like a very immediate impact, but also its influence is still being felt today. It's still being dissected today by certain podcasts. Um, <laughs> but also that song's still being covered, um, yeah. which... I'm sure if you go back to 1991 and read, like, the reviews at the time, um, it's like, A, a lot of those critics weren't of that generation, so they might have dismissed it outright. Or, like, B, you have the ones who are kind of reacting to the album in real time and being like, oh, you know, this is a big sea change. But it's like, who could have yeah. predicted what would have followed? Like, even Metallica, I don't think could have. Bob Rock maybe could have. Maybe yeah. he saw it. But, yeah. Hmm. And, and, and I mean, it, it, to kind of build on what you're saying, and this is something that's been mentioned before on this podcast, but you, you have to remember that James Hatfield in, James Hatfield in 1991 was not the James Hatfield we know in 2019, where he's a lot more vulnerable, a lot more willing to kind of joke around and... Um, you know, you see him in concert now, and it's more like, we love everybody, and, you know, insert dad joke, and I'm not knocking it, I love it, but it just shows his progression as a human being as he's gotten older, whereas 1991, he's still, fuck you, fuck this, fuck that, and, he, yeah. and, and you read interviews from him, and he's not willing to let anybody in, he's like a fucking wall, so for him, for that person... That James Hetfield to write a song like this is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's the template really for the person he would become, and um, to me, it shows that Metallica of all bands have always had that depth to them, because those sides of James, those sides of the band, sonically, they don't contradict each other. It's all kind of part of the same story, even yeah. if one can be a reaction to the other even if they might not sit well together on shuffle or whatever, it's still the same band. There's still that anchor of James and Lars at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this song, it, it's, you know, it, it's one of those five guarantees when you see Metallica live. You know you're going to hear Inter Salmon, you know you're going to hear Master Puppets, you know you're going to hear One, and you know you're going to hear this song, Nothing Else Matters. Um. Do you want? I'm going to let you guess how many times it's been performed live to date, according to Metallica.com. I'm going to set my sources as a podcast professional. <laughs> I did not look this up in advance. I'm going to guess 1,100. You're pretty close. It's been performed live 1,217 times. So you're pretty Very close. Nice. Um, the music video, the track, uses. Uh, a lot of clips from Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. Um, I remember watching it um, as a kid and always finding it funny when uh, MTV had a blur, um, like the strippers and the Playboy centerfolds of the music stands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, it features the famous scene, uh, which I've talked about before, early on in this podcast with my Winger Sucks episode. Uh, about Lars Ulrich throwing the dart at Kip Winger. And while that has its origins in a year and a half, 
I feel like it became famous for the Nothing Else Matters video because a lot more people saw that video on MTV than owned the VHS or anything of the documentary. Yeah. <laughs> uh. That video does have a sense of humor, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah. Also, Metallicast throwback. I just want to point out that I think it's your cousin's childhood cover of Talk Dirty to Me by Poison is like the most I've laughed <laughs> on the podcast possibly ever. That may have been what convinced me to like go on the show. <laughs> I'm going to have to let him know that. Just, just a fun fact. That song, that version of the song that he sings as a child was played at his wedding. <laughs> was played at the <laughs> wedding reception. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. And I think unknowingly to him at the time. <laughs> wow. Were you responsible for that? I was not. I was I was uh wow. I don't like to brag, but I'm a lot younger than he is. So I was a uh, I was a I was a uh, not in a position to have that kind of power. But I, I've not let him forget it. I never let him forget that cover because it's a pretty miraculous thing. So if you go back, to, it must be that must be in the Winger Sucks episode too. I think. I, I think it is. Yeah. But if if you're wondering why Metallica has an episode called Winger Sucks, go download it and listen to it. But no, we Winger wrote a horrific song um, that basically knocks Metallica because Lars Ulrich threw a dart oh. at him. Yeah. <laughs> But the thing is, I bet Kip Winger loves Nothing Else Matters. I bet he's, like, super jealous that he didn't write it, you know? <laughs> in more ways than one. Not just the royalties, but, like, come on. Here's this band, all these bands in the fucking 80s doing, like, this soft rock shit. You know? And then Metallica, the heaviest band in the world, comes out and does, like, a ballad that out-soft rocks them all. And it's still heavier than them at the same time, you know? It, it, what's funny too, not only does a soft rock them, but they still keep, uh, you know, their credibility and <laughs> their longevity does not suffer. Like this, for I, I know there's trues out there that were like, "Fuck that band, fuck this song, fuck Bob Rock, fuck this," but it, it really did not. Yeah, but when you, in retrospect, it's not. It's not hurt them at all. <laughs> uh, Nobody's going really to say know anyone what, who dislikes the song. Yeah, what's funny is that after all the things Metallica has done that are outside of metal, whether it be this song, whether it be uh, you know the whole load reload era, or Lars Ulrich basically would declare in interviews, "We're not a metal band." After all that, everybody still recognizes Metallica as not only one of the biggest bands in the world, but the absolute biggest metal band of all time. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no matter how hard they try, they will never be not metal. <laughs> no amount Very of Lou Reed so. records will end their, will, can kill their metal credibility. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the less, of the, the less of a fuck they give like the more metal they become in a sense yeah well it's funny because i remember there's not too many metal bands whose like t-shirt you can wear and i I just remember like being in college and like walking down the street wearing a a kill em all t-shirt and i have like this like hardcore punk rock looking kid like walking towards me you know i'm talking like he has the whole get up mohawk everything 
and and you could tell he was just like a true punk rock kid. And I see him like staring down my shirt. And I'm like, to the point where I'm like, this kid's going to make a comment about my shirt. And it's probably going to be negative because he's going to be like, fuck you to any band that's like mainstream and has sold albums. He seems like that type of kid. And he just stops me. He goes, dude, that one fucking rules. <laughs> I don't know. It was like one That's of those ones where I'm good. like, I, I, I'm like, it's they're like one of those bands. It's that like, at least you might not like everything by them, but they have something for everybody. <laughs> exactly. It's like the best way to avoid criticism of selling out or whatever is like to be to write insanely good songs. Yeah, it kind of makes them criticism proof, in my opinion. I mean, not no, entirely, true. but like. At this point, 28 years later, if you're still hand-wringing about, like, oh, did they make the right choice in doing the Black Album? It's like, you know, you can't even imagine the world you would live in without it. So, right. to me, there's no yeah. question. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything else we should talk about with this song, Richard, that we glossed over or forgot about before we get into... Um, some quotes here that I have lined up by both the band and members of the Metallica Expedition. All right, I will bring up one thing relating to a version of the song. So okay. there was this trend a couple of years ago of like tuning songs into different keys. And yeah. um, one of the most well-known is Nothing Else Matters tuned into a major key. So it goes from E minor to E major. Mm-hmm. Um that version haunts me. It's like <laughs> very disturbing because it's just so like artificially happy. Like, I don't even change that many of the notes, but oh boy. I um and speaking of soft rock, like I went back and listened to that just to put myself through the, the ringer again. Yeah. Um, I was like, this in a major key, it sounds like extremes more than words. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that far removed. I definitely have heard that version, but it's been years. I need to go back after I stop recording and check it out again. And and that's funny because it's literally the power of music is to make it E minor to E major, you're literally changing one note a half step. (laughs) And it's such a drastically different sound between major and minor, (laughs) especially for a song like uh... this. Please, so please don't play that version at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So I've referenced this book a bunch of times. Uh, Metallica in Their Own Words by Mark Butterford. Pretty sure there's various editions out there. It's literally nothing to the book except quotes. But there's a number, uh, there's a few that I want to share um, about the Black Album in general and about Nothing Else Matters because I feel like uh, sort of sums up some of what we've talked about today. So this is um, a lengthy quote from none other than Lars Ulrich. Who knew that? Who knew that Lars Ulrich likes to talk? Um, this is from October 1990, and he's talking about the Black Album, and he says this: "I've heard Bon Jovi this, Bon Jovi that, but the fact of the matter is, Bob Rock's got an incredible ear for attitude and feeling. Now that we've worked with him on pre-production, he's got us kicking ourselves for not doing certain things sooner." Bob's convinced that the four of us playing together has a certain magic or vibe that never happens with me doing drums or click track and James coming in and overdubbing rhythm guitars, blah, blah, blah. 
We've been very proud of how musically accurate our records have been in the past and how in tune everything's been, but it's gotten so clean and antiseptic that you've got to wear gloves to put the damn thing in the CD player. This time around, we'll probably have more of a feel of what we're after when we're playing live. A lot looser, groovier, underplayed, and overplayed when I want it to be. Being incredibly precise and accurate worked for a while. I'd like to try something different for a change. I think one of our major mistakes in the past has been sitting fucking with the stuff, concentrating on too many details, being too particular. This time it's got a generally looser, livelier attitude, which I hope will be a welcome contrast to the last album being so mechanical. All I can say is that we're letting the riffs speak for themselves for a change rather than diluting them with all the progressive nuances of justice. It sticks to one thing rather than fucking around needlessly. And I love that quote because I feel like it's not only uh, a description of where they were and what this album is, but where they would end up going. I mean, Load and Reload talk about playing, you know, loose and playing with more groove. And uh, it, that that was like the whole point of those records. Yeah, agreed. Like that quote almost describes those albums more than the Black Album in my mind. Yeah. I mean, you can see it accurately describing the Black Album compared to where they were. But in retrospect, it, it I mean, the Black Album sounds mechanical in a lot of ways compared to Load and Reload. <laughs> yeah, um, This is another one from Lars. Uh, this one from September 1991. Many people have asked me, what will your fans think of this record? I think most of our real fans know that we want to play many different styles of music, and that's something that we started doing on the Ride the Lightning album. We just have to keep doing things to make it interesting. I don't want a band like, no, I want to say Judas Priest, but I think the thing with Iron Maiden was a little misunderstood. I'm one of Maiden's biggest fans. I've said good things about Maiden in interviews for the past eight years. They're one of my favorite bands, but it's more or less the same, and people expect that. That's why a lot of people like Iron Maiden, but I don't want to be in a situation where you have to give people what they expect from you. This one ties in a lot with the vocals, and you'll never guess what who this quote is from. James Hetfield? Oh, Lars Ulrich. <laughs> ah! This <laughs> from... saying? <laughs> so close, no matter how far. <laughs> I just want to... Uh... Name check the Megadeth song Promises, which I always thought was like him trying to rip off Nothing Else Matters. Yeah. But like at the end of one of the worst phases. <laughs> so, uh, I'm trying to think of the melody. I remember the line, I will promise you. The very original line of I will promise you. But I forget exactly how the melody goes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Lars says, what we started doing this time more than ever before is really working a lot more with the vocals. I'm not necessarily talking about lyrics and shit. I'm talking about vocal melodies. The vocal thing in the past always remained a mystery to everyone in the band, but James, because he'd write everything five minutes before he'd sing it in the studio. Retreating the vocals on this record with the same off-front attention as the guitars, bass, and drums. We've got all these demo tapes lying around with James going, na, 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 na. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah. Again, it does take a, quite a bit of vulnerability to even be able to take notes on your vocals from other people. Absolutely. Especially during this era for that band, where they were so protected for every little thing. Control freaks, you know? Yeah. Um, this one is from none other than Lars Ulrich. <laughs> <laughs> but this is specific to uh, Nothing Else Matters. 
We were listening to the track, Nothing Else Matters, in the studio, and Bob Rock suggested we added some strings in there. So he got in touch with Michael Kamen, who used to do all the string arrangements for bands like Pink Floyd back in the 70s, and he does various film scores too. It's funny because when Bob Rock mentioned this guy, Michael Kamen, he never meant jack shit to me, which is funny <laughs> uh, considering where their relationship would go. Um, oh. Then a couple of days later, I was watching this movie on video, Lethal Weapon, and in the credits, it had all music conducted and arranged by Michael Kamen. All of a sudden, this guy's name kept cropping up everywhere, so we thought, fuck it, let's just go for it. Anyway, we sent up a copy of the song, and it came back about a week later, and we put it on expecting, you know, a couple violin bits here and there, and, well, he recorded a fucking 30-piece symphony orchestra down at Abbey Road Studios in London. There are violins, cellos, violas, double basses, woodwind instruments, 30 fucking guys playing Nothing Else Matters. We were fucking floored. Actually, we felt he'd gone a step too far, because we wanted to retain the original vibe of the song, so in the end, we found a good balance. And although the orchestra is still in there, it doesn't take over the song. I'm really proud of it. Which ties in with what we were saying. Because we are fucking geniuses. Hey. Yeah, we only uh, predicted a quote that you would go on to read from like 28 years ago. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is another one. From Lars. <laughs> he talked so fucking much. Um... Uh, Bob should be given total credit for making James feel comfortable enough to take that guard down and really sing on the album. We've always thought of ourselves as Big Bad Metallica, but Bob taught us a new word none of us had ever heard before. Soulful. As for James's image as a singer now, well, Chris Isaac is his new hero. <laughs> Nothing Else Matters is definitely one of the highlights for me. When the basic idea for Nothing Else Matters came on Hetfield's demo tape, it was the first thing that really knocked me out. I think James has been a little underestimated as a singer. People will always talk about him as a frontman, and you know, fuck, shit, cunt, piss, and all this kind of stuff. But finally, I think he won't be underestimated as a singer anymore. That's from Lars. And the last one um, I'll share is from Mr. Jason Newstead. Getting a hey. quick word in after all the Lars from February 1992. He says, we took a lot of chances on this record. Like the slower songs where James is singing, it's all pretty guitars and real clear picking and stuff. People weren't expecting that. It's cool because it shows another side to Metallica. Um, I lied. I'm going to share one more just to get a, a word in from Mr. James Hatfield himself. Uh, he says, We wanted a song that wasn't your typical Metallica ballad. Fade to Black, Welcome Home to Sanitarium. The all start mellowed, and the chorus is big, and the verse is mellow. We wanted to build it a little more vocally, bring in other guitars. I think the string arrangement on it is pretty fucking cool. If we're going to go for this kind of song, we might as well go all the way. That's James talking about this track from September 91. So that's a lot more quotes than I normally would read for an episode, but I thought they tied in well with our conversation today, some past conversations we've had on Metallica's Black Summer. And it's my podcast, so do whatever the hell I want. If you don't like it, all right, guess what? Go listen to the metal up your podcast. No, uh, listen to the man list to me, please. Please, please. I need the numbers. I need my downloads. Uh, Richard, it's now time to hear from the Metallicast Militia. Their thoughts on this Black Album classic from the Twitter machine. We have Mr. Punt Road. I'm pretty sure that's not his real name. At Punt it's, um, underscore a main road RD. near us in like Melbourne, Australia. Oh, you know it. Uh, I know the road, yeah. 
Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank God you're on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so he is at punt at sorry at punt underscore rd on Twitter, and he says it contains a truly ripping guitar solo by Hetfield. Uh, Joe at metal fan in black writes good song. Thumbs up emoji. (laughs) It is a good song. Thank you for sharing. Um, All right. Now we got some flick chatters. Download the app for free. Use the code Metallicast. Join Metallicast Militia Conversation. Brian, as in Brian Silver from the Unforgiven episode, says it truly is a classic. The way that Metallica is able to tone down their aggressive playing for the entire song into a great guitar solo is very impressive. Obviously, the lyrics are deep and very well wordsmith, but musically, this is an amazing piece. Mariam writes on FlickChat, Probably Metallica's most well-known song loved by almost any demographic imaginable. The Black Album catapult to Metallica to superstardom and nothing else matters was largely responsible for that. No, this isn't a song that will be forgotten easily. It's one of those songs that still will be played 50 or even 100 years from now. Overall, it's a very beautiful song. And of course, hashtag be like Ralph, Ralph Savetto, with his always eloquent responses. Ralph writes, this was the other extremely shocking track off the Black Island for me, even more so than The Unforgiven, but both in a good way. It's also a song that I distinctly remember listening to for the first time because of its significance. Yes, Metallica had, of course, written ballads before, but this one was quite different. It was a love song apparently written by James Hetfield, the toughest, most metal dude I could think of in 1991. To his then girlfriend. It took a bit of getting used to because this wasn't the type of song my band was supposed to play, but I had an open mind to it as I do to most new music I hear from bands that I enjoy. Eventually, the song clicked with me and I soon grew to love it. I realized what an excellent piece of music it was and how much courage it took for Hatfield and the rest of the band to put this song out to the masses because I'm sure they knew they would get shit for it. It also made me aware that one could reveal their softer side occasionally. Anyway, the lyrics are really heartfelt, and I love the Hetfield solo. It has so much emotion and soul to it. The song is also important to me because it was the song my wife and I used for our first dance. I was supposed to give the DJ the SM version, but goofs. It all worked out anyway because we're still married. <laughs> and now, on the count of three, Richard, let's give Ralph an aww one. Sorry, let's do it on the count of 666. Because metal! 666? Aww. aww. So, just showing, I think, though, those, uh, not only do they accurately describe uh, the song and its importance, but also, you know, touches upon how many different ways this song translates. Not, I mean, I would have loved that, I would have loved to have every Metallic song ever written um, at my wedding, but um, (laughs) there's only so many you can realistically fit into the mix. but it just shows the universal appeal of a song like Nothing Else Matters. We talked a lot, uh, or we talked briefly before about cover versions. A lot to choose from. Um, I narrowed it down to four. Made a Twitter poll. where I, So I chose, I, I, I let my Twitter followers choose between Shakira, uh, between... Postmodern Jukebox, um, and, uh, oh, the other two right there in front of me, and I just closed it because I'm a podcast professional. Um, I just opened it, so, um, 
Lissy, the folk rock version, and Scala and Kalakni, uh choral. Yeah, which was a choral version. I believe that one was used in um, one of what, what was the movie that came out about the hunt for Osama bin Laden? Uh, Zero Dark Thirty. I think it was used in the. I think it was used in that film, if I if I remember correctly. Um, but so we had basically a Latin pop version by Shakira, a folk rock version by Lissy, a jazz version by Postmodern Jukebox, and then the choral version we just talked about. It was a close one. It was basically between Shakira and Postmodern Jukebox, but Postmodern Jukebox edged it out at forty six percent of the votes. Um, there's a lot of covers out there though. Are, th- are there any cool ones that come to your mind? Um, that I did not list on this poll, not to put you uh, on the spot too much. Like the Macy Gray one is kind of different. Like I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I have not heard the post one in jukebox version actually, so I'm excited to hear that. But to me, in my mind, like there's never really been a definitive cover of this. It's just like too. It's it's too difficult. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It. And like I said, a lot of the covers you hear. They're they're one of two extremes, right? I listened to one. It was um, somebody can say who it was on social media because the name is uh, is slipping my mind at the time uh, at the moment. But female singer sitting down at the piano, huge symphony orchestra behind it. So it's a very like uh, lavish kind of like pop rock um, version of it. Then you have you know versions that are just a guitar and a guy and then you have you know symphonic metal versions of it and of course apocalyptica and things similar to that with like cellos only and there's a lot of a lot of uh wide variety of covers out there um that kind of fit into all different genres um share your favorite covers uh of nothing else matters with us all on flick chat or on social media uh, I am at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please follow me there if you're not already. Richard, where can everybody find you on the social media? I am at Richard, R-I-C-H-A-O-D, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, wherever I may roam. Nicely done. And I plugged the social media, but which you can definitely reach me on. Uh, definitely plugged Flick Chat already, which you can definitely reach me on. I'm trying to think of as many ways as possible that you can reach Metallicast and be a part of Black Summer, sharing your thoughts every week about the latest track. Next week, of course, uh, will be of Wolf and Man. Uh, so you can hit me up on social. You can call the Metallicast hotline, 203-548-0609. It is a Google number, so you can call from uh, your computer. You can call from your phone. Uh, we'll go straight to voicemail. Leave a message. You can email the show, Metallicast at fansnotexperts.com. Um, and, of course, again, social media, Flick Chat. Social media, Flick Chat. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Flick Chat. Flick Chat, Flick Chat. Did I mention Flick Chat? You should download Fli- Flick Chat. It's free. Use the code Metallicast. I've also sent out the link uh, to the group so you can join directly. Um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation there. If you enjoy this podcast... If you enjoy the people I've had on the show, like Richard, then you'll definitely enjoy the you'll definitely enjoy the conversations on there because they're pretty much all on there, um, and we want you to join. So here is the cover of "Nothing Else Matters" by Ju- uh, by sorry, post 
modern jukebox. I almost said jukebox postmodern because I am a podcast professional and I will continue to be a podcast professional next week when I air beef with my guests. That's right. If you thought me airing beef with Richard S.C. on Holier Than Thou was bad, wait till you hear my first time guest next week of Wolf of Man because I got a lot of beef with this guy. Till then, ladies and gentlemen, metal up your ass. Yeah! more from the heart forever trusting who we are nothing else matters never open myself this way life is ours and we live it our way all these words I just don't say Nothing else matters Trust I seek and I find in you Every day for us something new Open mind for a different view
close no matter how far Never gave much more from the heart Forever trusted who we are Nothing else matters. Fans not experts.